The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged, wherever you are and whatever you are doing. I'm so glad you could join us today. My name is Jess and I'm your host for this episode. I am joining you from a sweltering day in the Arizona summer. I hope everyone is staying cool, staying indoors. Uh, today, I am very excited to be joined by Rachel. She's going to tell us a little bit about her story and her experiences with major depressive disorder. So without further ado, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me here. I'm, I'm excited to share and hope that uh, my story can just give people some hope or help in some way. Uh, so as you said, I, I do have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And I would like to start actually in the year 2014. Um, I had some significant life changes that happened from that point and then really up until um, very recently. So in 2014, I'll give a little bit of a picture of how my life was. I have just gotten my PhD. I am married with a beautiful five-year-old child. Uh, we have a house, we have grandparents in town, uh, we have friends that we've, both my husband and I have had for almost our whole lives. We've lived in the same place for a long time. And um, life is pretty stable. So for me at this point, life has been pretty steady, meaning that I've been mentally pretty healthy and pretty stable for some years. Um, we have a huge change that's about to happen for us because as I did my job search and, and sent out my CV sort of everywhere, um, I ended up getting a couple of job offers outside of the United States. And so we did make the decision to move to Singapore so that I could take a job at a university there and I could further my career, sort of get jump started um, with what I wanted to do or what I thought I wanted to do. Um, moving forward. And so it, it started out even before uh, we moved where there was so much stress that I was going through in preparing that it caught me off guard. Um, we decided to sell everything essentially. We sold our house, our cars, all, almost all of our non-sentimental belongings. Um, we researched schools for our daughter, uh, we looked up culture and language and how do we function there. Um, one of the bonuses with Singapore is that the official language was English. So um, we at least had a, had a leg up there. But um, it was a lot of work. It took us actually about four months just to prepare. And so I was under tremendous stress. And I really wasn't paying very good attention to my mental health. Things had been so... Um, kind of easy going for a while. I think I sort of just forgot like I have to pay attention to that So I was drinking coffee all day long not sleeping just trying so hard to get these tasks done So we get it all we meet our goals. We sell our house. It is all like ready and um, We take off we have never been there before none of us had visited uh, which I should have realized it's a big thing to just move to another country when you have 
never even been there. Um, but we were just like, okay, adventure, we're going to do this. So we get there and I start my job within a couple weeks. And all of a sudden, I remember sitting in my office just thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do my job. I don't know how to start a research project. They must have hired me by, by mistake, like I fooled them somehow. And so I, I started to feel this incredible sense of fear that I was going to fail at just, it wasn't just my job. It was like, I'm going to fail at everything. Um, so I'm new here. I've got a good boss. I've got good coworkers who are all very, very kind. So it wasn't like I didn't have a great support system, just especially arriving to a new place where we didn't have family or anything. I was just terrified. And this feeling, um, it grew so strong so quickly that I just really started to fall apart. Had you ever felt that way before? I had felt that way several years ago. In fact, I had not had that feeling since before my daughter was born. And I think one of the things I, it would, that really made um, the next few episodes of depression that came in my life really hard is that I didn't think I could feel that bad as a mother. And it was so bad to the point that I remember standing on a subway platform. We, we took public transportation everywhere in Singapore. And I remember like looking down the train tracks and thinking, I'm, I'm going to just jump because I, you know, it's better that I don't exist than exist and cause all of this pain to my family. And so I hadn't had a feeling that was so immensely suicidal since my daughter was born. And I thought, oh my God, how, how can I be a mother and think such a thing? Like, don't I love my daughter? Like, how could I even possibly have this? Um, so at that point, I, I'm just feeling ashamed. I'm just feeling guilty that I can't be a good mother and worker and all of these things. And I thought, you know, I've got to get back on meds. Um, I hadn't been on meds for six years. So pretty much since um, my pregnancy, I was able to function relatively well in life and grad school and parenting without being on meds um, and without going to therapy. So this was such a shock to my system at the time um, that I knew like something like this, I can't do this on my own, like something is really wrong. So I, I did my duty, I got myself to the campus clinic is where I ended up going first. And they listened to me, I told them I wanna kill myself. And they said, go to the hospital. Here's a kind of a note, take this, go to ER, show them this. And so I did all those things. I shared with them how I was feeling. I had not shared with my husband that I was so bad. I called him, I said, I'm going to the hospital because I, I don't feel right. I feel really scared. And he was sort of like, what's going on? He had never seen me um, really enter into a depressive episode and especially not, you know, in such a sudden severe way. So he's just like, okay, like, you know, go, go to the doctor or do whatever you need to do. 
So, so he, I, he had no idea at this point that you were having thoughts of killing yourself. No, he, he had absolutely no idea. Um, he knew my history. So I, there was a time in my past where I did attempt suicide. Um, before I met him, life was really crazy. And um, there were a lot of bad decisions I had made at that time. So I could, I could rationalize it then. I could make sense of kind of how I got there and, and why. But this time... I was like, but life's been good. You know, I've, I've been healthy and now we have these great opportunities. You know, I'm going to ruin, I basically like, I'm going to ruin them all. Like, mm. it's just, it, it, I, I'm going to finally kind of prove to everybody that I really am worthless. Um, so he has no idea I'm feeling this bad. Um, so he was scared. I mean, we, we've taken many years <laughs> to talk through, uh, just his experience of this. Um, but I went to the hospital. I was told, you know, here are some anti-anxiety drugs, basically benzodiazepines, um, Xanax, um, Ativan. I don't remember what exactly they gave me then, but they said, take these if you start to feel panicky. And they said, we're going to set you up with a, psychi a psychiatrist right now. Um, and then you're going to continue on. You need to get evaluated. So I followed my instructions. I went home. I told my husband I, I need to get back on meds probably. And he knew, he knew of my history of depression. Uh, so I, you know, he's just kind of like, okay, you know, just sort of not really sure what to do, not really sure how to support me, but he knew that he somehow needed to support me. Um, so I, I made it, you know, a few weeks in, had seen the psychiatrist, was told I have situational depression, which had happened to me at this point two other major times in my life. Um, I was always told this is situational depression, and when, you, when your circumstances change, you're going to feel better. Two times before it happened, I was also put on medication. So same thing. And I thought, okay. And he said, you need to start therapy. And he said, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you. So one thing that I really appreciated with my experience in Singapore was that they really followed up more frequently than I had experienced before. And I think that is part of why I eventually got to the proper diagnosis of actually having major depressive disorder. So um, I, I get better within a couple months. I mean, I've found a good therapist. I, you know, kind of rehashed some history. I have a history of abuse and trauma. So I, you know, all of these things were not unfamiliar to me. It was just that I had been out of practice, I think. And I wasn't, I wasn't deeply invested in what I needed to understand about myself at that time. So this was a chance to do that. So I go a couple years just doing pretty well, continuing my therapy, you know, it kind of dwindled down to once a month. Uh, saw the, I remember the day like the psychiatrist was like, okay, he's like, I think you can come see me in six months. It was like, you're good enough as you are where, you know, we can go a little bit of time without having to check on you again. And we're having fun, like we're traveling, we're doing all this great stuff. Life is feeling really good. And then I basically hit sort of a small bump at work, just 
one of the projects I was involved in, I was kind of, it wasn't even bad, to be honest. I was just not happy with how it was going. And all of a sudden, this feeling of failure just flooded me. And, and it right back to the same ways I felt a couple years ago when I first started and when there was stress of moving and having to adapt to another country. Now I've been here a couple years. I'm doing okay. I have a little bit of this uncertainty. And I was like, I'm going to fail at my job. Like I'm, I'm going to ruin my family's life. And it's probably better off that I just like remove myself from this earth before I hurt more people. So this was just this continual theme that was coming up for me. And I was suicidal again. And I was, I just remember feeling like so disappointed. Like, like I, like I thought I was better. I thought I was better. Why is this happening again? So I went back to the psychiatrist I said, hey, I'm not doing well again. And he was like, okay. He said, we need to increase your meds. He said, you probably have major depressive disorder. He said, this is now happening more frequently for you. And he said, we need to watch you better. And I said, okay. So it seemed to do the trick. The increase in meds seemed to do the trick because I had never quit therapy and I never really stopped, you know, doing the healthy things that I believed I should be doing. I was doing yoga a couple times a week. Um, you know, I was having downtime. I was having family time. Uh, I was feeling pressure from work, but nothing was actually bad. I just had such a distorted sense of the reality once that fear kind of made its, made its way into my mind. Um, so I'm up on the meds. I'm doing better life is good again. Um, and, and it's just, it just sounds so crazy as I'm telling this story, actually. Um, it's coming up on three years in Singapore and my contract is set to end. So I have the option of renewing for another four years or, you know, kind of moving on and seeing what else is out there. And without looking for another job, I got an opportunity to work in Switzerland. And so at this point, the, the, the first feeling I had was hesitation. I knew the person that was starting up a new lab uh, in a university there. Um, we were friends. Um, he knew my work. Uh, he believed in the work I did. And so there was everything that could go well about this was set in place, but I did not feel right. Um, and I, and I sort of had to convince myself, like, that we need to do this. Like, we need to take this opportunity. My husband at the time wasn't working so that he could spend time with our daughter and have that chance for himself to not be, you know, kind of stuck in a job and, and kind of absent from the family. So we were in a place where another move for me was going to disrupt um, what was becoming stable for me. Um, but, it, but because of my family, because of my husband's um, interests at the time, just looking at the opportunity in front of me and sort of not wanting to live with regret, uh, I took the job. And I worked at convincing myself for the next several months while we again prepared to move across the sea 
um, and experience all the stress. Like at least I knew what the stresses would be, or at least what some of them would be. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, I will regret this more if I don't do it than if I just do it. So we get set up to go. It is stressful. It's hard. We get there. Um, and I'm doing okay. So I'm kind of actually surprised. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm like checking myself. Like I'm fine for now. I'm not depressed. I'm not suicidal. This is good, you know, but we get there and like from day one, it's just bad. <laughs> it's a bunch of strange, weird drama going on at the workplace. My husband and I are just fighting terribly. My daughter is really angry. She didn't want to leave her friends. She, she actually started her formal schooling in Singapore. So we were tucked into a very tight-knit community. She was at a private school because she had to be. She wasn't allowed to go to the public schools there. Um, and it was an international school with an American curriculum. Um, it was a small Christian community. So we were really tucked into a very close group of people and everyone was an expat there. So and that, was, that was in Singapore. That was in Singapore. It was easy to be close to each other because we were all kind of going through the same experience. One person typically had a spouse working the other would stay home with kids or kind of, you know, do the family stuff. And so when we got to Switzerland, there was no community for us to join. The language, we, we went to Zurich, so the language was German, and none of us spoke German. So we were going to just kind of try to make it and find our way to friends and community in this new space. And it wasn't, it just wasn't happening. Um, my daughter had a terrible time in school. She was bullied. She was teased for being foreign. Um, and and I, she looks like a little white child. I mean, it's, <laughs> we were in a little village in Switzerland, and there were almost solely white people there. I'm actually half Chinese. My husband's Hispanic. So my daughter came out with this like light-colored hair and light, light skin. So it wasn't like by the looks she looked any different. But immediately when she opened her mouth, her accent came out. She would speak English. Um, she was learning German, actually. She was learning it pretty well. But um, she was still being ostracized. And this isn't something I found out till later. We just knew something was wrong with her because she was withdrawing. So I am somehow kind of dealing with all this and feeling okay. And then I remember, I think it, was, it must have been about mid our mid midway there we stayed there only a year um came in the summer by december of that year i just felt we're again i'm gonna fail i'm gonna fail at everything we're not doing well here this is my fault um it started to affect my ability to work so i became again just so fearful that i was going to drop the ball there's a lot of things that um underlie major depressive disorder for a lot of different people. I think you've mentioned a couple things that are important to return to. The sure. idea, this sort of um, continuing imposter syndrome that you have. Absolutely, yes. Right. Um, and also, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the distorted sense of reality. At mm -hmm. the time, that is your reality. You are truly living in that space. 
Um, but it's interesting Definitely. to hear you kind of go back and talk about it because I can hear you say, well, it really wasn't that bad. Well, it really, you know, and right. It just for anybody listening that has struggled with depression before it, it truly is like you're living in this parallel reality. Yeah, this was, um, this was really scary. And to, to be kind of experiencing this terror, I mean, it, it really is terror um, that everything is just going to like fall apart, like, like this, you know, glass ornament that I, I make one little chink in and then it's just, it's just going to crumble. Um, I think, and this is, this is part of why I believe it got so bad, because um, it got even worse. <laughs> um, people around me were really there for me. I mean, there were times in my life where I was like really in a bad situation and I could be like, oh yeah, life's really horrible right now. But I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile this conflict. And I felt so bad, but everything around me didn't look bad. And it really made, I think it made me feel alien. And it was in Switzerland where I was, here I go, start to experience these episodes again. Um, feeling like, it's almost like the world's kind of falling away from me. Like I can't touch reality anymore. I, I even can see it kind of floating off in the distance and I just can't connect. And I was so frustrated. And at the same time, all of those terrible messages and things that depression tell you, like you are not worth living. Everyone would be better off without you. Um, you're a burden. You're causing harm to the people you love. Those messages were so strong, but it was like this time mixed with such a frustration I had that I couldn't reach out. So one of the ways that I would often explain it to people after the fact um, is that I often felt like I was encased in a glass box and I could not get through it. There was no door, there was nothing, but it was completely see-through. So I could see kind of the love out there. You know, it, it wasn't that I felt unloved, I felt unlovable. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I mm -hmm. felt like, I didn't deserve any of this love and it, it made me feel more ashamed. And so I'm looking out of this glass box, seeing supportive people and resources and, you know, stuff that I can access, but I can't get past the walls. And it's so like this negative feedback loop. Oh yeah. Just caught in my mind, just running through and running through. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I can look back now and see some of the reality of what was going on and understand that this disorder I had was creating symptoms that made me think this way. Back then, I mean, as I'm in it, I'm just frustrated and confused and scared and feeling worthless. And so, um, we, I tried to pull through, I tried therapy there, I ended up going to a psych hospital there, um, 
had a morning where I just couldn't move. I woke up and I couldn't move. I was just like, I can't go to work because I can't move. And my husband came in and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I, I can't move. And did you like quite literally feel like your body was just paralyzed or? I felt like I, there, it, like I was kind of trapped in my bed. I felt like um, I could like move my arms and legs and maybe sit up a little bit, but I couldn't get out. Like I had such terror of like stepping outside of the bed that I, I did feel paralyzed, but like I could still move. So I, I knew at that point, I'm like, okay, this is like really, really bad. And my husband, he had taken note kind of from before. And he was like, you know what? I think you're depressed again. And he said, call your psychiatrist. And I said, okay. So called him. I said, I want to kill myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm that far down. And he said, go to the psych hospital. He was just like, I don't know what else to do. I'm a psychologist. It was actually a psychologist. He's like, you know, what we do here in Switzerland is, is we tell you go to the psych hospital if you're suicidal. And, you know, I, I have to tell this next part of the story with, with this um, disclaimer that surely my sense of reality was affected. Um, I don't know what I was really seeing or wasn't seeing, but um, my husband, he was like ready to get me help. So he's like, okay, we're going to the psych hospital. That's, we have to figure out where it is and how to get there. And they told me just show up. They said, you don't have to call, just show up. You walk in and they will help you. So we're in a city, like Zurich is pretty city-like, especially, you know, down in the center. And so we're taking the train out there and it's, it just starts to get a little bit like rural almost. And again, I, I, I want to go back someday and, and see what it really looks like because at this point, I think my brain is just so messed up that I don't really know what I'm seeing. Everything is through this filter of darkness. And so um, we're, we have to get off the train and like walk through this field. So it's kind of like off isolated. And it, it looked like I had entered into an old movie with like the asylums, like the mental asylums, like big concrete ominous building and uh, long dark windows. And it, it was frightening. And so I was like, from the get go, like, oh my God, this, like, what am I walking into here? We go, we get there, we walk in, there's no desk, there's no like reception area. So we're just like looking down these lonely hallways and like wondering what are we supposed to do does you know we see some people nobody speaks english like so finally we find someone who is like oh do you need to see a doctor and we said yeah like you know she's depressed she's feeling suicidal my husband's kind of doing the talking and she leads us to the waiting room and it is decorated with this like old um just grubby looking random furniture and there is art on the wall displaying sad clowns and weird circus animals with frowns. I, and, and I, you know, I had to like ask my husband, I'm like, is this, is, am I seeing this? Like there was just this weird, sad circus art 
all over the waiting room. And I was like, I, I'm in a nightmare. Like this is, this is like my nightmare happening right now. So I didn't stay there. Um, we saw the facility, there were beds and I was just like, no, I can't, I absolutely can't do this. And um, from there, this was all in like a day. We get back to the city, we take, you know, take the trains, get to my doctor, which was actually really convenient. They, they had clinics and things like right by train stations and things like that. And I got in and saw her, she gave me more benzos. She's like, take these. They were the equivalent of Ativan, I think. Don't use them too much, but you know, when you feel really bad, take them. And um, here's, here's the highest dose of your medication you're already on, like find a psychiatrist. And so we stayed in Switzerland from February until mid-July. Through that whole time, I tried a new psychiatrist, I tried new meds, I tried meditation and yoga and a CBT workbook, um, but I was not getting better. I was just getting worse and worse and having to like, just tell my husband like, like I, I feel like I wanna kill myself right now and he would come and sit with me or you know, he'd be like, do you wanna, do you wanna take a nap? I slept as much as I possibly could. Um, there was a day, uh, the worst day I remember, I, I counted the hours later. I stayed in bed for 36 hours. I didn't drink water. I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't eat. And so I was, I was so utterly unmotivated and just lost any sense of like caring about myself that, you know, my husband was just struggling to like get me to brush my teeth at night and, you know, please eat something, please drink something. He was totally taking care of our daughter, which was another just terrible, terrible aspect of being so depressed, um, feeling like I was a bad parent and really not being able to be there for her and care for her during that time. It brought so much shame onto me, which just fed all of these negative loops that were already going on in my mind. And so we finally figured out that like this, it's not going to happen here. I quit my job. We moved back to the States. Um, we went to live with family. We lived with my dad and my stepmom. Uh, and we didn't go back to Phoenix. Uh, we were originally from there. We went to Salt Lake City. We, we still kind of wanted, well, I, I didn't want anything at the time. I, I, I actually, by that time, I don't think I thought a bit about what was going to happen to me. I think I really just laid around and thought about how it would probably be better if I was just dead. Um, but my husband, you know, he kind of, we got to where we needed to. Um, and then I, I just had this terrible just fit of hysteria one day at my dad's house. I was like laying on the floor and I couldn't stop crying. And I told my husband, I said, I, I need to go to the hospital. And he was like, what? Like, are you, are you serious? Like, are you, you know, I kind of thought, I thought things would get better when we finally came back home, but I hadn't gotten really any of the treatment that I needed 
from the, the, the entire year we were in Switzerland. So um, I, he, he took me in, he took me to ER and they're doing their assessment. And I think it was the first time my husband really started to understand that this suicidal thinking is a thing, like this is for real. And I remember the medical assistant who was evaluating me, he said, do you have a plan to kill yourself? And what I told him, which I, I, I felt nervous saying in front of my husband, but I was like, you know what, this, like, I can't hide this anymore. I'm too visibly, obviously messed up to be able to hide this. And I said, I've been Googling how to overdose on benzodiazepines and any other drugs that I had access to, you know, just can I overdose on ibuprofen? Can, can I take like all of my antidepressants and like overdose? And so, so they list listening to you say that I get chills yeah. listening to you say that <laughs> um, because from the outside in, right. It, there are, like you said, there's so many things that are happening internally and it's your perception. Oh, yeah. I can just imagine, I mean, was your husband just completely floored? Yeah, he, he was terrified. And, and really, I only know what we've been able to talk about after the fact. I, I couldn't, I was so internalized that I, I just, I couldn't even pay attention to what people around me were sort of doing. I couldn't read facial expressions anymore. Like, I just simply couldn't connect with any human at this point anymore. I mean, you, you were truly debilitated. I was truly debilitated by, by that point. So, um, yeah, I, it, was a, it was a really um, tense moment in my, in my mind as well, where I, where I really needed to say that. And he later said to me, he's like, why didn't you tell me that you were thinking about like how to kill you? Like you were like Googling things and looking things up. And all I could say was that I was ashamed. I knew that wasn't right. Like I knew that in my mind, I believed it was wrong for me to commit suicide. Like I, like I knew that much at that point, but I couldn't, I couldn't shake the, this idea that like my existence was more burdensome for people than my death would be. I mean, I, I would just, um, think like, oh, you know, my husband and daughter, they, they'll grieve me. Yeah, that'll probably be hard. But, you know, me existing right now is like worse. And I really just, I really just started to believe that to where, you know, I, I, I was getting more serious. I think about like, how could I end my life? Um, so they admitted me to the psych unit at that point. And um, it, I had never been admitted before. Um, there was the one time in Singapore just that I had gone to ER, but this was really the first time I was like really getting like a very immediate treatment. Um, they saw me, they diagnosed me with major depressive disorder, which I had known, but also with generalized anxiety disorder at this point. And um, the, I, I really... I, there was a good psychiatrist there. I trusted him. I just trusted him right away. And he said, we need to get you off your meds. He said, they are not working anymore. And I was like, okay. So um, 
I ended up staying in the hospital for eight days and I was able to switch my meds through that. Uh, the psychiatrist believed that I was probably addicted to benzodiazepines at that point because I couldn't, I really couldn't function, especially when I was still in Switzerland trying to work. I took one or two or however often I needed to throughout the day just to like exist and not run into the bathroom and, or, or just go home or something. So um, I got off those. I made a crisis plan. Um, that was something I never knew to do or heard of before. So I worked with them to, you know, create this, when I want to kill myself, what do I do? You know, I call the crisis line. I put the crisis line in my phone after, after I got out. We couldn't have phones in there. Um, I wrote down specific people in my life that I knew uh, were safe for me to say these things to that I could call. And I wrote their numbers down on this piece of paper. And I wrote my husband's number down on this piece of paper. And they said, when you feel like you want to kill yourself, you get this piece of paper, look at it and do what's on it. And it, I did use it. Um, so I got a lot of new coping skills, I think, by being in the hospital that I, that I just hadn't had before. Um, but, but I also, I also hated it. I mean, I was, I felt a little bit like a prisoner. Um, it, it was weird. I, I had, you know, I mostly wore scrubs and like couldn't have shoelaces or a razor because they were danger. So there was definitely aspects where I'm like, okay, I don't want to go back here, but I'm getting help. And so, um, spent my eight days there and I started over almost like as a, as a person, like I was not working on how do I get back to work? I was like, how do I get to a routine of showering every day? Like without my husband being like, please like pushing me to like brush my teeth and take a shower. And I, I did start to get a little better just in that I could do more just like a normal person could do. I started walking my daughter to school and interacting with her again. Uh, I did learn some mindfulness techniques that I practiced. Um, I didn't feel good doing them and I didn't feel like it was working, but I did it. Um, and that was partly because I had gotten set up with a therapist and psychiatrist after um, I left the hospital. And I just told myself, I have to keep going. Like I have to stay on this, um, path of getting help because I'm, I'm not well yet. You know, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be. So, um, I spent the next probably five months, uh, sometimes just crying through making dinner because I felt bad and just doing it anyway. Um, listening to a meditation at night because I hated everything. And I knew that was better than me sitting around thinking about killing myself calling crisis lines because I didn't want to burden my husband like yet again with this terrible feelings that I had. So um, I want to say that I really didn't kind of flip to where I finally felt like I had gotten over this hump um, until I was introduced to a third medication, um, working through the psychiatrist and 
the therapist and kind of having them at the same office and work more like a team, that was really helpful. I really didn't make a turn until I'd gotten on the right medication and my therapist worked with me on acceptance of having a disease. I sort of, I wanted it to just go away. Like I, I, I kept telling myself, like, I'm doing all this stuff. Why isn't it working? Like, I still feel bad. Like I'm now I just go through life completing more tasks than I did before, but like, I'm not living, like I'm just zombieing around kind of. And it, it took, it took my therapist being really straight with me. And I think what he did is he forced me to accept the reality of where I was. I, I remember several times, first time I, I really just broke down in his office and I was, I was kind of angry. I was like, nothing is working. I'm like, he's, and he would tell me you're doing better. Look how much more you can do now. And I was like, but I don't feel better. And I was hysterical just in his office one day. And he, I was kind of like, I was complaining. Like I was just like, like, I'm done. Like, I don't want this anymore. And he said, do you want to kill yourself right now? He said it so matter of factly. And I said, maybe. And he just said, go to the hospital. And I was like, right now, like I'm in his office. And he's like, yeah, he's just, he was so calm and so straightforward. And he said, when you want to kill yourself, go to the hospital. He said, that's what you do. He said, if you don't want to kill yourself right now, we'll keep talking. But he said, if you want to kill yourself right now, go to the hospital. And I was like, no, I don't want to go there. And he said, okay. He said, you have a disease and your disease has symptoms that tell you you are a worthless person and that you shouldn't be alive. He said, but that's not you. He's like, we are going to work on this. And it took me just this time to let that sink in. Um, I finally got on this third medication. I'm on three different types of antidepressants right now. And however all of these things probably worked together, just keeping up at that practice of trying to meditate and trying to do yoga and trying to take walks, having therapy, getting the right medical cocktail for me. Um, I remember all of a sudden I, this darkness lifted. It really felt physically like something had lifted off of my body. And um, that was a year and a half ago. And I just, I have continued sort of on all of this, I would call it hard work to figure out, you know, how to be okay with where I am going from kind of these aspirations of being a career woman and, you know, getting this education and, and these jobs out of the country and all this stuff. I, you know, I'm way happier now than I was when life was sort of exciting. And I think what I was also forced to do in just going deep into myself was realize what are, what are my values? What do I really want in life? And I want human connection. You know, I want good relationships with my family. Um, I do some part-time work now. I take on consulting jobs that are interesting where I can help people and 
you know, where I can feel like I'm doing something good for society. Not that academia, you know, academia isn't that. It's just that for me, I needed, I need the human connection and I need that one-to-one kind of, you know, conversation, like, here's how I can help you. Here's how we can work together. And so all of those things are happening in my life now. And um, I've been able to frame this disorder just so differently for myself. So I like to say I have major depressive disorder. I'm in recovery and I can live a more full life, to be honest, now than I could before. And again, I think that's just from really making the effort to go deep. It's hard, it's terrible, it's painful. Um, but it's, it's ultimately what I needed to, to get to the life that I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. You have been on quite the journey. I have been on a journey. <laughs> and there's even more before this part of the journey. But yeah, this has been a, such a, um, it has been life-changing uh, to go through all this in the last few years. Um, but it, it does, are, it feels good to, to be on the other side now. Are you worried that you could have another episode? I am prepared to have another episode. Um, that was part of, I think, accepting that this is a disease. This is not my weakness and my failures. And this isn't, if I just do X, Y, Z, I will prevent this. So now I'm to where, um, you know, I do believe the episodes can come back. Um, I have bad days. I have days even now where, you know, something will trigger me and I'm like, I wish I was dead. You know, that, that thought comes quickly. And I think what's different today is I have different tools. You know, I have that thought today and I think, you know what, let me think about what I've been doing in the last few days. I've been really busy. I haven't taken my time like I usually do. I need to take a rest day. I mean, I have the wherewithal to kind of understand what I need better now. And I, I can tell myself, there's my disease, you know, like I want to kill myself. Oh, that's, that's my symptom of suicidality. That's what that is. And it's so much easier to deal with it that way than to question my worth as a, as a person and, and just question, am I just like this weak, messed up person in society that should have never existed, you know? So um, I am not worried about an episode coming. I am ready. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to share? Um, is there anything else? Uh, I would like to just put, and I know this word is out there in many different forms, but I just want to put it out there again, that if a person is feeling like this, get help, get external help, because it is, it's not you messed up and you failed. So you suffer consequences. This is a disease that exists. And 
that feeling of wanting to cure yourself is a symptom. And so, you know, call the crisis lines. I never thought I'd call a crisis line before, but they've really helped me. Um, you know, go deep, um, as painful as it will be. It, that understanding of yourself, I think, um, is, is really important to kind of learning how to live with something like this and learning how to manage it better. So don't be shy, get the help. When your brain tells you you're not worth it, tell yourself it's a lie. So that's, I think, what I'd like to say to those out well, there. I know from hearing your story today, I really gained a lot from this experience. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> Yeah, that absolutely. Is, that is affirming for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank, it takes a lot of strength and um, to come from that genuine place and be able to tell your story. I, I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners are, are probably right there with me on that one. So, Well, thanks for having me again. And, um, you know, I just, it, I've come a long way, so I, I couldn't tell this story um, two years ago, but I'm glad I can tell it now uh, and, and share that. So thanks very much for just having me on here. Thank you so much, Rachel. We appreciate it. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara LaMontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.